Support for this podcast comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to policyholders who focus on keeping their employees safe. More at TexasMutual.com. Paula Harris retired after 33 years with Slumberjay, a big oil and gas company in Houston. In her final years at Slumberjay, she headed their ESG efforts. Those letters stand for environmental, social, and governance. And it's a term for everything a company says it's doing to address climate change. And despite the rise of ESG, the industry is still not moving fast enough overall to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. The industry is in a period of profound uncertainty and change. And I appreciate talking to Paula because she helps shake up what we might expect from the industry. And professionally, she has been at the center of that change for a long time. This is No Hill for a Climber from Texas Public Radio, a show in which the steep challenges of business are met with uncommon courage by Texans on their way up. I'm Michael Taylor. Welcome, Paula. And can you start by telling me where you come from? I'm from the south side, the sunny side, south side of Houston, which was at the time a complete African-American community of people coming home from Vietnam with their benefits and buying their first homes. And it was a very hard working class community, not a lot of uh, college graduates or not a lot of folks who... um, who aspired to be petroleum engineers. And it was lack of exposure more than lack of um, education back then. And okay. now, but but my father saw in the Houston Chronicle every Sunday they would have the highest, the highest paid salaries per major. And he saw every week on the Sunday paper right there in the front, it said petroleum engineers make more money than anyone else. So he told me the only thing he was going to pay for was a petroleum engineering degree. And he heard Texas A&M was one of the best. And that's where I had to go. And me that, on the other side, I'm saying, what's a petroleum engineer? I knew no one, <laughs> right. the geology or land men or drillers. <laughs> All right. So, so that anticipated my question, which is how do you upend expectations? And to some extent, the answer is your dad. Uh, focus on the bottom line. And he said, and you know, from what I can tell still, petroleum engineer is still the highest paid or among the (laughs) average highest paid coming right out of college type of degree. It's still one of the best. Okay. So tell me a little bit about you um, go to, you enroll in petroleum engineering program at Texas A&M. Describe to me, if you can, the demographics of, are there any other Paula Harris's there? (laughs) Who's there? There are no other Paula Harris's. There had been one other African-American female, so I was the second to come through a program that, of course, probably tens of thousands had come to by then because in the 70s and the 80s, the oil industry was doing so well. Um, There weren't a lot of girls at all, and there definitely weren't uh, girls of color, and there definitely weren't girls from Sunnyside or or from from inner city Houston. So being able to stand out and, and still learn and still thrive and still survive, and not only just survive, but be successful, um, was probably the beginning of what made uh, my 33-year career with Slumberjay, which had some of the same similar similarities. Um, mm-hmm. I worked in the South. I worked in South Louisiana, South Texas. I worked offshore. A lot of folks from um, Mississippi and Alabama and Texas are in, in this industry. And to always uh, feel like, you know, you have to prove yourself sometimes. And sometimes it's a lonely place. And sometimes you just feel like you're something special. 
because 99% of the time I was the only female and the only um, African-American on the rig. So mm-hmm. when you, it's always a woman on board, woman on board, as soon as a chopper's landing or you're getting off of a crew boat. And I would be so intimidated, you know, at the beginning. No, don't worry about me. I don't need anything special. My guys, I bunk with my guys and I'll be in the logging unit most of the time. Don't think about, you know, no special considerations. Mm-hmm. And after so you, so I got, you're going out of you're going out of your way to make them feel comfortable. Oh gosh, like, don't, yes. I don't want to yes. make you uncomfortable. Just exactly. you, you do you and I'm going to I'm just going to be invisible or you know along with the guys kind of that's thing? it that's it until okay. until i got more sure of myself i became a very a very proficient engineer so i think the, okay. the final years that i spent offshore where i was a lot sure of more assured of myself and my capabilities were much more enjoyable for me at yep. the same time, Schlumberger was a, always a progression. So I spent seven years offshore, and then I went to sales, and then I went to training, and then I spent time uh, working in IT support kind of positions in um, Venezuela or in Perth, Australia. So you're always in a situation. You fly into, I've had a couple of global global positions, including the one I finished it. I did global sales training. So when you hit a developing country and there's chickens in the airport and somebody's standing there with, with you hope, with your name on a card and the airport is closed and people are asking for extra taxes, you know, you are always in in a situation where you're kind of different or uncomfortable or mm-hmm. made to feel like I need to survive this. And I think being at Texas A&M and working offshore and being in this industry helped me to be where no matter what the situation, let's just make this thing work. Let's figure it out. You're a problem solver. You get things done and you kind of have this by any means necessary cowboy attitude that kind of goes with life now. So I'm imagining in the the corporate career that you had that you need mentors, but there are not going to be a lot of older black women looking out for Paula Harris who, you know, pull you up as you go. Did you did you lack mentors or did you develop mentors? Absolutely. I felt um, kind of alone and without mentors. And I guess when I was about mm, probably 20 years in with the company, I wrote a book on it. And it's uh, called Four Sister, The Guide for Professional Black Women, because I was looking for advice from someone with my background and in my industry or in my field, and I didn't find it. So I just went around interviewing all of these successful African-American women, just getting best practices and lessons learned in um, climbing a corporate ladder. Now, at the same time, um, I became a mentor to so many, and I really talk to females, and especially black females now, on you're an engineer. Stay on the profit-generating side. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so easy to tell women HR or or go into, uh, you know, recruiting, you know, Mm -hmm. go into um, ESG, you know, Mm -hmm. and all of these are not revenue-generating um, um, positions in the company. And so I give that advice because no one really said that to me. People right. looked at me and said, oh, she'll be great in recruiting. Oh, she'll be great in, you know, training because we'd mm-hmm. like to use her face and her ability to talk and her ability to, to represent Schlumberger publicly um, in these roles. So, um, and no one ever said, no, Paul, you want to be a country manager. You want to stay over and have 
have, you know, some some profit profitability roles. So mm-hmm. that's something yeah, that, that I mentor. That advice seems right on point. I'm I have a different career on Wall Street, and there's the difference between the the producers, the traders, the salespeople mm-hmm. versus the the research folks, for example, or mm-hmm. the IT folks, which are going to be associated with the cost center. Yeah, but, but that advice seems right on point for every every business career, right? Um, and it makes sense to me that people would recognize both your skills, your people skills, your your verbal skills, as mm-hmm. well as wow, if she can be the face of Slumberjay, like this is to Slumberjay's benefit, but. Is it to your benefit to keep rising? Uh, is, is an open question. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's really interesting. Good thoughts. Mm-hmm. L- let's talk about late career. You became director of global stewardship, which I am possibly incorrectly going to say the person responsible for ESG, which we could define as environmental social governance, which is a, th- a phrase that people increasingly understand. Right. So you've already suggested that there are some downsides to being on the side. That's not a revenue side. That's a side that's in a in one exactly. way of looking at it is going to be in contradiction to Slumberjay's basic job, which is extracting hydrocarbons. <laughs> right. And and you have to sell it internally twelve years mm-hmm. ago, right? Before mm-hmm. before the COP twenty one, before you know, you, you we had to we had to sell you know, um, in the midst of flaring and fracking and and the Permian, and to go, to go in and have conversations, uh, and starting with, we need to be more efficient. We need to make sure our clients work more efficiently. We need to serve, you know, um, we we need to be more energy efficient and energy effective, and and all the way to the point where Slumberjay, of course, has sold its fracking business. You know, and many companies have gotten out of businesses that are known detriments to the to the to to the earth and to the environment. But I would say that the industry is turning the corner. It is. And by I mean I'm the president of the Petroleum Club of Houston. So mm-hmm. I know for a fact there are many people in our industry that says solar go to hell, wind go to hell. This the mm-hmm. you know you need fossil fuels to make all that stuff and where are we going to throw all those batteries away instead of um, being very proactive and saying we have to work together. Renewables have to be part of, well, they definitely need fossil fuels and hydrocarbons to exist. And just in that same vein, we need renewables to, 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 for us to stay in existence. So we have to work together. You know, there was a big freeze in Houston, Texas in February where um, our energy sources did not supply the heat and many people died and everybody's pipes burst and no one had water. It was just such a showing of how close we are and, and how much we cannot live without energy. You know, we, we, melted down the city of, you know, not having the ability to cook and flush toilets and turn on lights and get in our cars and drive somewhere. So fossil fuels are here to stay for a while. They're not leaving Mm -hmm. tomorrow and they're not leaving in 10 years or 20 years. So it is going to be, this transition is just what that word says. It has to be a transition. And who has provided energy whether it was clean or not, who knows this industry is the oil and gas companies. And now we just need the people, the technology, the same resources and the same research dollars to go into clean energy. And that's okay. exactly what's happening. I, I truly believe that it's it, we, one can't do it without the other. So I'm glad you brought up Texas. And Texas is 
the unexpected in terms of renewable energy. It's number one in wind energy. It's number two in solar. Uh, you know, we're still getting a majority from fossil fuels, but we're bigger than, than people most think. people know. That's right. It, it, and related to that, but also it came up during the snowpocalypse, and I wonder if you could just talk about this. The leadership of Texas is very afraid of describing Texas as a renewable energy state, right? I Correct. think. Correct. Uh, and I think that makes us worse off. You know, California can say we're the number one in solar energy, which they are, but that's that's meeting expectations. But Texas is number two. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and we won't say it. <laughs> I think one of the solutions is jobs, right? The, the minute that the renewables have the ability to provide, you know, jobs and job security, then people are going to be much more um, favorable and outwardly excited about the renewable part of the energy industry. Right. Two stats stand out for me. One is the Dallas Federal Reserve said that solar output is going to quadruple in the next three years out of Texas. And the second is is anecdotally sparked because I've driven around West Texas and and South Texas near Corpus. It's full of wind turbines everywhere, uh, which have been named the the fastest growing job category in America and Texas, like number one. Uh, So it feels like these jobs are here and they're coming. And it feels odd in contrast. Why can't Texas leadership be proud of this? Are they worried that this is going to hurt the oil and gas industry? Is that why they're afraid to say something? Yes. I mean, it's just a push-pull. It's just, we we have to, it's it's just disruptive behavior where um, feeling like we can't coexist. You have to be for, if you're for fossil fuels, you have to be against renewables. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's not the way we're going to survive this transition. That's the binary kind of black and white view that I think, yeah, exactly what you say. It's hurting the ability to work together in a complex way Mm -hmm. that bothers me a lot. Um, Feels like we're we're missing out. Um, Absolutely. Is there a solution to that? Do we, how do we fix the language around this renewable transition or energy transition? I think it's just going to take time. It's going to happen. I think, you know, uh, right now, um, when you think about profitability, quite obviously the profitability numbers are still with fossil fuels. Um, I think the renewables are going to have to be more open and honest about how much they rely on fossil fuels to build <laughs> windmills and to to um, and batteries and everything else they need. Um, I think that um, there has to be a lot more research dollars pumped into universities and companies that are looking to help through this transition. But I think this is just the, the you know, when you have the five phases, the Foreman, Storman, Norman, you know, and perform, we're, we're just right there at Storman. <laughs> we're just right there at where well, we can't get along, we can't get it together, but we will all come up with the same solution as depend, you know, as demanded by, if you're saying you're being demanded by this next generation or by our mm-hmm. European countries that are so much further advanced than we are in accepting this transition. So mm-hmm. I just think this is just the, just the disruptive behavior as people um, fight against change, but it's coming. Mm-hmm. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, one of the tensions we address is related to what Paula was just saying, namely, to what extent is the industry willing to change and at what pace? She was recently named president of the board of the Petroleum Club of Houston, which fits her agenda to improve access and inclusiveness, which could be considered the social and governance parts of ESG. Last summer, Texas Mutual sent $330 million to resilient companies who work hard at working safe. It's their 23rd consecutive year of distributing dividends and helping businesses invest in a bright future. Since 1999, they've paid out more than $3.4 billion to employers who share their commitment to building a stronger, safer Texas. Learn more about how Texas Mutual is changing the way workers' comp works for you at texasmutual.com rewarding. I want to zig and zag a little bit back to your own history of community service and community involvement. We first met because uh, somebody tipped me off. You were the the new president of the board of the Petroleum Club of Houston. I think of that a little bit. You keep sort of upending expectations in these things, specifically with the Petroleum Club of Houston, which my wife described to me as the ultimate like old white guy network, but here you are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, changing changing the look or changing people's expectations about it. That's what our industry has to do. You know, we have to change the look. And Renewables does that, by the way. Renewables, mm-hmm. I, I really fault the oil and gas industry. And I talk really straightforward to these guys that it's just small, closed, very homogeneous fraternity. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to get rocks thrown at us because no one knows us, whereas yet renewables is more diverse. And, of course, uh, there are a lot more women in leadership in the renewable industry. So, you know, a lot of DE&I. So it's very easy to to pit us against each other is them, you know, renewables, the renewable arm of energy being more progressive and us being old, stodgy, petroleum club, white guys with gray hair and cigars. But mm-hmm. at the same time, this industry has finally started um, being more inclusive, but it's almost too little too late. And I think we are the last bastion <laughs> in the oil and gas industry behind finance, behind retail, behind everyone else to come along and say, you know, uh, there's a lot of value in diversifying with gender and race. And I think that, too, along with the environmental issues that, uh, that we've had, that too is, a, um, is something that has been, is being held against us. So the Petroleum Club needs to evolve. The, the traditional energy, oil and gas industry needs to evolve. There is a strategy we could say that's strategic in making Paula Harris the face of this evolution. I mean, I, I think you're acknowledging that a little bit. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Does that bother you or, or do you embrace it? Or, Well, I'm a performer and I'm a hard worker. <laughs> so I wish that they would just have 20 more Paula Harris's. You know, okay. it shouldn't be just one Paula Harris because there's nothing special about Paula Harris. There's a lot of smart African-American or, you know, women in general who... Uh, work hard, who give their all to their careers and, 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 you know, run for, you know, always try to be in leadership. There are plenty mm-hmm. of women like that. You just mm-hmm. have to make sure that, um, you don't just have one who is, you know, this, this, this one face of it. You, you have to be inclusive and be truly inclusive and have mm-hmm. an inclusive culture because today's kids, 
they're so different than we are. <laughs> they yep. just do not play games. Young yep. people today, they are about uh, fairness and equity and DNI, and and they're not going to take and just you know talking heads. You have to right, right. walk the talk and really mean do what you say you're going to do. Yeah, people know the difference between strategic PR and actual evolution and change Absolutely. and cultural change, as you say. Yeah, people get it. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I'm a little obsessed with the this show on the success and definitions of success, and I wondered if you could, maybe this is my last question, what part of your long and varied career makes you feel most successful? Wow. Um I'm, I feel successful because I feel as though um, I've had a long career and parts of it have been very public. Um, you're right. I was the face of Slumberjay. When you say Slumberjay, people know Paula Harris because I'm out in the community and around the globe. So I've had a very public um, life. And I'm, I'm, I still would have to go back to as much as I say, well, oh, I hated being on the school board. I did have the opportunity to open an inner city, all girl school focusing on engineering and focusing on the energy industry. The Young Women's College Preparatory Academy is, I always say it's my legacy, that at any given day, there are seven to 800 girls being educated in engineering, and it doesn't matter where they're from, they're just girls who are smart and who are being um, challenged and who are going into STEM careers. And that all goes back to my dad pushing me into engineering without me ever going to a camp, reading a book, talking to an engineer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think people could be a whole lot more successful than I was. I just definitely have a longer run rate, r- runway to get there if they um, have a little exposure and education on the road to a STEM career. So that's my thing. So, so we could say that your highest measure of success is, in effect, building a different kind of pipeline. Absolutely. That, right. I like that, building a different <laughs> kind of pipeline and a pipeline of girls and a pipeline of kids of color or kids from inner city, making sure that they have the same, uh, just making things a little bit more equitable. You're welcome to use that, but I, I need credit and no, just uh, I, I royalties say, from here I on out. Yeah, definitely say, as Michael Taylor once said, <laughs> <laughs> I'll always preface it. <laughs> right, yeah. I've, I've trademarked it already, so yeah. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Good. Paula Harris, I am super grateful for your time and for your energy and your leadership and for building the pipeline. Appreciate the conversation. I, well, I appreciate it also, and thanks for the call, Michael. No Hill for a Climber is produced by Ryan Kyloth with editing help from Ben Henry and Dan Katz. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. I'm Michael Taylor. Talk to you next time.